This morning we'll be reading from John's first letter, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commands. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the reading of his word. morning. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for um, that uh, amazing song that we just sang to you, the one who is worthy of all praise and or, uh, glory and honor. And God, we thank you that, uh, that even though our sins are many, uh, God, your mercy is more, that your, new, your mercies are new every morning. And God, we can, um, we can take that to the bank. So God, thank you for, um, for your sacrificial, active, uh, give love to us, um, your children. And thank you, God, for um, the work that you're still doing in us uh, to complete us. And thank you for the work that you're doing around the world in bringing uh, more sons and daughters into relationship with yourself. God, thank you that because of our union with Christ, because we have died and been risen and have been seated with you, God, that we, um, we have overcome. You have overcome and we've overcome the power of sin and Satan and death. So God, please uh, um, have your way with us this morning. I'm a beggar, as always, in need of grace. God, I pray that your spirit would empower me and your spirit would soften our hearts to receive your word. And I pray, God, that we would... Um, leave here and more in awe of your love for us and more resolved to love you in return by keeping your good and holy and righteous commands. We love you. We thank you that you love us more. And all of God's people said, amen. Well, good morning again. Uh, we are continuing through 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And as, uh, as I think Jake said, we've titled this sermon series, Blessed Assurance. And today, um, this passage... Um, I've titled this, these five verses, We Have Overcome. And um, I've been just, I've been profoundly um, impacted uh, by the passage. Um, and it, it has caused me to worship God, not only just in words, but to want to worship Him more um, through, um, through active love by uh, serving Him and obeying Him. You know, as I was thinking about this, I was just thinking about my own journey. And I know, I know I've shared it, some of you have heard it. Uh, at the risk of being repetitive, I know some of you haven't, but I just thought that it would be edifying and also give God glory, and it fits well with the passage today. That um, I grew up in a religious house that, um, that where I had a, uh, probably an unhealthy fear of God. Um, I believed in God. Um, I knew that there was a God who, um, who was um, watching over me and waiting for me to blow it. 
and uh, to, uh, waiting to enact uh, some kind of punishment on me. Um, so I had a fear of God. Um, I knew that he would, um, um, that he would uh, punish me or discipline me um, for the consequences of my sin um, in the moment, and that there was a possibility that if I didn't shape up, that I would be eternally separated from him. And you know, I lived in perpetual fear and guilt. I had no, I had no compartment. I just, uh, I tried to be good. Um, I did everything I could to, to do what, um, what my parents asked, what the teachers asked, what the coaches asked, and I just had no, no power to do that. And as I was just thinking about a picture, I felt I was, I was like my, my two-year-old grandson who, um, who was thirsty for water but just isn't, wasn't tall enough, couldn't, couldn't access the drinking fountain, and that's much how I felt before I came to faith in Christ. One summer in my teenage years, I was 15 years, 15 years old, I heard about God in a different way. I heard about a God who created me, a God who created his law and his commands, but I heard that he wanted a relationship with me and that there's nothing I needed to do to enter into that relationship other than believe that I'm a sinner and believe that he came to pay the penalty of my sin. I heard about grace for the first time, and it was like drinking from the coolest of water on the hottest of days. And I knew that my sins had been forgiven. I knew at that moment that I had a relationship with the God who created me. What I didn't understand was how to live the Christian life. What I didn't understand that even though grace was free, it was also costly. What I didn't understand was that I would still have a sin nature that would want to live life my own way. What I didn't understand is that there was an enemy. I didn't understand that Satan was alive and well and he's wanting to destroy me and my relationship with a God who just saved me. I figured... After professing faith in Christ, I figured that I can continue living the life that I had before I was a Christian. I was unbelievably grateful for God's grace, but I assumed it meant that I did not need to live in conformity to his commands anymore. So I was always close to the edge of sin. I was continually being tempted by Satan. And the more that I sinned, the more that I listened to Satan, the more that I would um, know that God was out there somewhere, but that I would see him one day in heaven. I didn't think much about a relationship anymore. And then the Lord really started getting a hold of me. About 20 years later, after I was married, probably about 13 years into marriage, and I recognized that God, by his grace, called me into a relationship with him. Not just, he didn't just forgive me my sins to one day be with him in heaven. That's true. But so that he could be with me today and I could be with him. He also, what I also understood is that, some, that what that involved is that me not living the lifestyle of sin that he saved me from. And so as he was convicting me of that, the only thing I knew to, need, the only thing I knew to do was to run. I had my wife, three kids, a dog, and a cat. And we moved. I, I picked up 
and I, um, and I escaped because I, I had no other way. Um, God was drawing me. God was showing me that he loves me and wants the most intimate of relationships with me. He was showing me that I could have fullness of joy and that joy wasn't found in my sinful living, that that joy was found abiding in the center of his will. And the only thing I could do, because I was so paralyzed and I was so um, magnetized to the sin that we, were in, that we were living in, that I loaded up the family and moved to Fort Collins. My wife, my three kids, my dog, and praise be to God, I left the cat in Denver. <laughs> the cat and Satan. Might have been the same in one, I don't know. So let me ask you this. Do you, whatever your understanding is of the victorious life in Christ, are you living it? Are you winning the battle over sin and Satan? You see, I didn't realize that there would continue to be a battle with my sin and other people's sin and Satan. Are you living too close to the edge, too close to your old lifestyle before you were saved? Are you living the victorious life? Let me just review 1 John at a very high level. And the passage today, I believe, is going to really be helpful to us in answering these questions. But just at a high level review, um, John wrote this letter to Christians like you and I. Christians who were saved by God's grace to be loved by him and to love him in return. Christians that, um, that struggled with sin and temptation, just like you and I. And John said, I write these things, I write this letter in chapter 1, verse 4, to make your joy complete. That's massive. Like, that is God's best for us, is that we would live on this rock with maximum joy. I mean, you ever think about that? I mean, in all the, um, the garbage that we hear on TV, with all the um, sadness and decay that we see in the world, that he came to give us life and give us life abundantly, to give us the fullness of joy. Next, he came so that we... He, he wrote these things so that we may not sin. Well, that seems like counterintuitive. Like, can I have maximum joy and not sin? Isn't a lot of that joy come from sin? That's what the world thinks. I write these things to make your joy complete so that you may not sin. Next, he says, I wrote these things in verse, chapter 2, verse 26, so you wouldn't be deceived. If he wrote these things so we wouldn't be deceived, do you think that he knew that we would be deceived? that there would be false teachers, that the enemy would be prowling around like a roaring lion looking to devour through deception and lies. And he says, I write these things, chapter 5, verse 13 through 14, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And finally, he said in chapter 5, 19 through 20, I write these things so that you may know him. And know him is derived from the Greek word gnesko, which is the most intimate word uh, that, that you could come up with in Greek. It actually comes from the Hebrew word that describes intercourse. It's intimacy. So I write these things so that your joy might be complete, so that you may know him. John's aim is that believers would have the fullness of joy that comes from 
fellowship or intimacy with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. In this fullness of joy, in fellowship with the Father, will produce a love for God, a love for God's children, and a love and obedience towards His commands. If you want to know if you're growing your relationship, you can, that's, that's an acid test. Are you loving others more? Are you loving um, uh, his commands and ob obeying his commands more, therefore loving God? Last week in chapter 4, verses 12 through 21, John focused on loving others with the love that God has loved us with. In 418, he said this. He said, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. It's a, it's a massive passage. Because what, he, what John described, he says, the more that we as believers understand God's perfect love for us, the way he says it is the more that God's love is perfected in us, the more we understand it, the more natural it's going to be to love other people. Without any fear of those that we're loving rejecting us or abandoning us. There's no fear in love, but God's perfect love casts out our fear. And we saw last week, the more that we abide in God through his word and through prayer and through his body, the more we become aware of his incredible love for us. Then in the last verse of chapter 4, John told us that whoever loves God must love his brother. Whoever loves God must love his brother. And then he reemphasizes and expands on this point today in verse 1. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. This is not just simply a belief or acknowledgement that Jesus is God. It's trusting in Jesus. It's trusting in his uh, perfect life and his finished work on the cross for the remission, the forgiveness of your sins. It's continuing to trust Jesus. In this new birth, those who've been born of God, you will have new desires and, and a supernatural and growing love for Christians. A family trait of those who are born of the Father is to love our brothers and sisters, those who have also been loved of the Father. Now, I don't know if I'll be saying this a lot. I probably should. I say it often. But remember that this Christian life is about direction, not perfection. See, what the enemy wants to do is, is, is condemn you because you blew it again. God must not love you. But what God is calling for and what he's given us is um, a spirit that, that enlivens uh, new desires in our heart. And in verse 2, he throws out a bit of a twist, actually. Previously, in verse chapter 4, verse 20, he said this, if anyone says that I love God, if a Christian says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. One of the active ways that we love God is to love those that God loves. Anyone who says they love God We'll love those who are born of God. Not perfectly, but we'll have a desire at a minimum to love those whom God loves. 
If you say you love God, you'll have the growing desire to love those whom he's created. Verse 2, though, is almost an exact opposite of verse 20. Verse 2 says this. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. Before, in 420, the test was, you know that you love God when you're loving your brothers and sisters. Now John seems to flip it around and says, you know that you love your brother when you love God and keep his commandments. His thought process appears to be circular. He's saying that one cannot love God and keep his commandments without loving the children of God. And one cannot love the children of God without loving God and keeping his commandments. A reminder, God's love is an active give love. And those who have been born of God are to actively give love to our brothers and sisters in Christ. The way we actively love God back is to do what he asks us to do. That includes loving his children, and it includes obeying his commands. So how do you know if you're loving your brother and sister? By loving God and obeying his commandments. Think about it. Think about it just for a second. Think of just some commands. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not, um, what's another one? Kill. Those all involve people. Those all involve people. Name any command that doesn't affect another human being. When we are breaking God's law, when we're not submitting to his commandments, we're not loving our brothers and sisters. I want you to remember that John um, wants those born of God to experience maximum joy and intimacy with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And this will happen increasingly the more we understand the love of God and in turn desire to please him and glorify him by loving those he loves and obeying his commandments. Verse 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. It is consistent with God's word for someone who professes to, a love for God to not have a growing desire to live in submission to his good and perfect commands. Where did we ever get the notion that you could say that, that I'm a Christian and I believe that Jesus is the son of God and then you get to live your life in the same way that you did before you became a Christian. That is contradictory to God's word. I had a man that, um, a friend of mine from the past that, that is contemplating a life change and wasn't sure if this life change was in line with God's will or not. And instead of just doing it, and asking for forgiveness later if he was wrong, he sought counsel. And to me, this, to, he, that is a wise man. This is a man that, um, that has a love for God as in expressing that love by wanting to be obedient to what God has called him to do. You see, you can't live in opposition to God's commands and claim to love him. If you profess to know Jesus and love God, yet live in rebellion to his commands, you're deceiving yourself. Go back to my life just for a minute. There's 20 years between the time that I professed Jesus as my Savior and when I started living like it. 
I don't know that I was saved. I mean, when I look at God's word and I, and I look at the word and it says that, there, that there, there, there will be a transformation, maybe not immediately, maybe it's more progressive for some. And I'm, that's one of the first questions I'm going to ask God when I get there. Like if I would have died at 16, was I in? I don't know. It doesn't matter to me now. But I do think we need to be careful. I don't think we can um, look back on a child that is um, wayward in some way, that is, has no interest in God now in their adult years, and his parents that we can take solace that they prayed a prayer when they were four. Okay, I'm not saying they're not saved. I don't know. Only God knows. But salvation in Christ, it's by grace, by grace alone through faith alone, but it produces fruit. And it might be raisins for a season. You see, Agape love is not a feeling. It's not a sentiment. It's active. It wants to please. The way we love God is striving to please him by living in submission to his commands. If I say that I love God and have no desire and make no effort to keep his commandments, I'm delusional. I don't love God. It's the same way that I tell my wife that I love her and I do nothing to serve her. And I'm doing nothing but holding grudges against her. And not forgiving her. How can I say I love her? Love is active. Love is give love. Our love for God and others is progressive. His love is not. It's instantaneous, instantaneous and complete. But we've got to kind of grow into ours. That was my story. I thought I could accept God's love and the gift of salvation and pick and choose which of his commands I would obey. I think of it as a, as a smorgasbord or a buffet, like just full of God's commands. And as one who's saved by grace through faith, that I can just go up and go, you know what, um, I'll obey that one because that one's easy to obey. Uh, that one's a little bit uh, not convenient. I'll obey that one. That's a smorgasbord. That's not how it works. Many professing Christians accept the love, grace, and mercy of God will want to live life their way. Did I already talk about the quarterback, the service? Was that last service? Okay. There, um, and I want to be careful here. And, and remember, um, nobody knows the heart other than God. Nobody knows the heart uh, other than God. Um, but why do we celebrate um, um, the, that, that somebody is, um, is a believer, that somebody is, has a regenerate heart, uh, particularly somebody famous, somebody that is a quarterback, where I've heard people say that, you know what, that's a team I'm going to root for because he professed faith in God. Yet has been living with his girlfriend the last seven years and has no plans to get married. Okay, I don't know. I'm just saying that you um, that for us to celebrate that, particularly celebrate that publicly on Facebook, is a wrong message to the world. I don't know if he's saved or not, but that's not the way that Christians live. It's not God's best for us. That's not living. That's not loving God. Picking and choosing that, yeah, I'll, I'll do this one, but, you know, I really like her and I'm not ready to get married, so I'll just go ahead and have sex with her. 
Many professing Christians accept the love and grace and mercy of God, but want to live life their way. That what's a little pornography going to do to hurt? You know, God will forgive me. I'm in if I sleep with my girlfriend or boyfriend. You know what? God knows that God wants me to be happy, and he knows that I'm not happy in my marriage. And I know I don't have any grounds to get divorced that I see in here, but, but God wants me to be happy, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and get divorced in an unbiblical way. God knows how much that person hurt me. So I'm, I can choose not to forgive them because they've hurt me so bad. James 2, verse 14 and 17 says this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? So also faith by itself if it does not have works, is dead. If you have no desire to keep his commands, his love is either not in you at all or, or you just haven't mined the depths of his love yet to understand his call on your life. Then John adds at the end of verse 3, after telling us, by this we know that, the, that we love the children of God, that we love God. By this we know that we love the children of God, that we love, oh, that's two, sorry. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And then he finishes up, and his commandments are not burdensome. Praise be to God. They're not heavy. They're not grievous. They're not burdensome. For the believer, for the non-believer, man, they're, they're, a, they're a heavy weight. Because for the non-believer that's trying to climb the ladder of morality to God, he'll never make it. It's a heavy burden. But for us as believers, it's easy and it's light because we have God's spirit. Because we're motivated not by anything we're going to get, but because all the love that we have. Jesus said this in John 14. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I'm sure glad he didn't just stop right there. He says, I will ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells within you and will be in you. I'm so thankful that the spirit of God convicts me in my sin. I'm so thankful that the spirit of God gives me the power to say no to sin, and to say yes to God. The Spirit of God indwells us and reminds us of God's love and also gives us the power and ability to do what he asks us to do. And in verse 21 of chapter 14 of John, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. They're not a burden because we now have the proper motivation. It's not to climb the ladders because he came down the ladder to us. The motivation for, for keeping his commands is responding to his love for us. Additionally, they're not a burden because they're good and they bring blessing, Romans 7, 12. So the law is holy 
and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. He's given us the law for our protection as well and for our blessing. Jesus graciously invites all to come to him in Matthew 11. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is to the Pharisees that are trying to climb the ladder of morality. But this is also a reminder for us that we can continue to come to him. Verse 29, take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's saying, I'll never ask you to do anything, but I won't give you the power to accomplish. And I'll never ask you to do anything that won't ultimately bring you blessing. So here's the test. Do I see Christian living as a task, a, to- a chore, a burden? Is it something I resent? Or do you love God and want to express your love through keeping his commandments? Do you feel overcome by the weight of sin and temptation and all the evil that lurks in this world? Well, believer, Jesus has overcome. Therefore, you can overcome. We can keep his commandments because he has overcome the world and by faith we too are overcomers. Verse 4 and 5, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Those born of God, every believer who's been given a new heart has overcome the world. And to overcome means to to be victorious in battle. And when John refers to the world, that we've overcome the world, he's saying what the world is is that it symbolizes all that is wrong in this realm that we live in. Sin and temptation and death. The world symbolizes attitudes or values that are opposed to God, both within us, because there there are things within me that at times oppose God, and things in the world. He said this, John said this back in chapter 2. I think Pat preached on this passage and just did a phenomenal job. John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And you remember Jesus' words back in chapter 16 of John, verse 33? He said, in this world, you'll what? You'll have trouble. You'll have tribulation. But he said, take heart, for I have overcome the world. And you, brother and sister, who have put your faith in Jesus, the one who overcame the world, are to have overcome the world. That sin and Satan and death no longer have a grip on you. No longer, uh, yes, will sin. Yes, Satan, the liar and deceiver, will chuck lying and deceiving bombs at us. And yes, we will die once but we will be raised to live eternally with the triune God. We have overcome because of faith. We will continue to overcome by our faith in the power of the Spirit. 
By faith, you belong to Christ. And we're reminded that by his grace, through faith in the Son of God, that you have been clothed in his righteousness. We have overcome because he overcame. This overcoming, though, is an already but not yet proposition. And if you haven't, um, like, explored that deeply in God's word, it's everywhere. The more you uh, dig into uh, biblical theology, you see the already and the not yet. That we have already been declared righteous, but we are not yet righteous. The reality is that we've overcome sin and Satan and the final enemy death because of our union with Christ. But we're still overcoming. The victory of faith is complete, is a complete action, and it's also an ongoing process. We are counted holy or righteous because of Christ. Some theologians call this definitive sanctification. Hebrews 10 says this, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. For a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Because of your faith in Jesus' shed blood, you've been declared, you've been justified, you've been declared innocent. And that Jesus took all of your sin and he clothed you with all of his righteousness. And because you have no, um, because we've been clothed in his righteousness, you can approach the throne of grace with confidence. But the Bible speaks to a practical outworking of this positional righteousness or holiness or sanctification. There's growing holiness, there's growing righteousness, there's growing sanctification. And that's the mark of all those who would have faith in God. Hebrews 12 says this, strive for peace, strive for peace with everyone. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It's an already, but not yet. We're in. We're fully and completely loved. And that is our motivation. That's what compels us to live God and to submit to his commandments. So how do we live this already but not yet victory out? How do we do that? First is to understand the call in our life, the call to be holy as he is holy. The second is to understand that there's a battle raging. We live in a war zone. We live in a war zone. This is not peacetime. It is peace with the one that could have um, uh, brought the worst torment on you that you could ever imagine. We're at peace with the one who created us. There's no fear in love. But on this rock, the battle is raging with our own flesh and with the enemy who wants to destroy our intimacy with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. I can't, and you can't, overcome the world unless we understand the nature of sin and Satan while at the same time understanding what Jesus accomplished on our behalf. Satan is a ruler of this world. But for the believer, for the believer that has been transferred or exported from this world, 
We're now under a new rule and under in a new domain, and it's called Jesus' kingdom. My favorite, one of my favorite, I got a new favorite every week, passages in Scripture is Colossians 1, 13 through 14. He has delivered you from the domain of darkness. You've been delivered, and you've been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So even though we have overcome the world, We've been delivered from it. All that is evil, we've been delivered from it. There's still a battle going on, and Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 6. And Paul tells the believer, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Can I remind you of that? There's no human being that's your enemy, especially brothers and sisters in Christ. We have an enemy, and that enemy wants to destroy the church, and he wants to destroy everything good in this world. For we don't, do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I expect non-believers to act like they have enemies. But God does not expect us to act like we have enemies. Whether it be a different political party, whether it be a different ethnicity, a different religion, we have an enemy, and it's the devil. And before coming to faith in Christ, we were ruled by the devil. We were ruled by all that is evil within us and all that is evil without us. We were ruled by Satan and sin. When by faith we were transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. We have a new king. We live in a new realm. We have new desires. We have new hope. We have new power. But even though the power of sin and Satan has been defeated or overcome, we still lived in our unredeemed flesh. And we can still give in to temptation. And Satan still tempts, and he lies, and he deceives. So here's the picture that I have. That when I was in Denver, um, when the Lord was saying that, um, uh, son, um, you're not living for me. You're still living like you're in the kingdom of darkness. You need to move away from the edge. You see, there's a, there's a street, if you will, that once you path, it divides the domain of darkness in the kingdom of Jesus. And once you have been pulled from the domain of darkness to cross the street into God's kingdom, um, you can never go back. God won't let you go back. But you can walk on the edge. When I was in Denver, I was walking on the edge in God's kingdom, I think. I'll know one day. But I see Christians doing it all the time. We're walking on the edge. And you know what happens on the edge of the street when the domain of darkness is right there? The enemy can throw things at us and hit us and lie to us and deceive us. And we put ourselves in a place to fail. And what God wants us to do 
is he wants us to move away from the edge. For my case, it was to move out of Denver. I was stuck. I had no resources I knew how to employ. And I had to load up the truck and move to Beverly. I had to get away from it. And moving away from the edge isn't just moving away from the loud, annoying, destructive voice of Satan, but it's moving to the center of abiding with God in his word through prayer and in fellowship with the body of Christ. And can I tell you this? That if you think you're strong enough to walk on the edge and yet bear, let the, and the Spirit of God bear fruit in you at the same time, you are woefully deceived. And, more importantly, you're never going to experience the fullness of joy and intimacy with the Lord that He's created you for and that He died for you. So move away from the edge and start making steps towards the center. Center, not center. Listen to 1 Corinthians 10, 12 through 13. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Pastor Dan, you don't know me. I've been a Christian for 30 years. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk close to the edge for whatever reason. Take heed lest you fall. Move away from the edge and start making steps to the center and abiding in God. He goes on and say, says, he says, no temptation has overtaken you, but that is, that is not common to man. What he's saying here is that, that every temptation that you're experiencing, um, it, it's common to all of humanity. Like you're not specially, like Satan hasn't, like, Satan hasn't necessarily picked up the steam against you. My guess is if you're being overly tempted and you have a lack of joy, you're not experiencing intimacy with the Lord. It's because, because you're walking too close to the edge and you're not abiding with God. No temptation is overtaking you, but that is uh, not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Staying away from the edge and abiding in the center, drawing near to him through his word, through prayer, through intimate involvement in his body. We need to walk away from the edge where the enemy's voice is the loudest. And might I mind you, where our flesh is the weakest. By faith, trusting and relying upon Jesus, we get the courage to walk away from the edge and draw closer to the center. He'll always give you an escape. You need to look for the exit sign. There's always an exit sign. In Denver, the, the exit sign for me was to um, load up the truck and go north. It's the only thing I can do. I couldn't escape. I couldn't, I couldn't get away from the edge of my eye. I kept walking there, so I had to physically um, see the exit that the Lord gave me. And we had to, um, with courage, walk through that. There's always an exit from your temptation. So Christian, 
Are you living on the edge? Or are you abiding in the center? And if you are living on the edge, um, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. John gives us, tells us what to do with that. We're told that even though we sinned and even though we failed, 1 John tells us 1.9 that we're cleansed from all unrighteousness. If we agree with God and confess that I've been living a life of sin, I've been viewing pornography unchecked. I haven't confessed it to anybody. I'm harboring unforgiveness. There's bitterness in my soul. Remember God's love for you. Remember that he wants more for you. Walk away from the edge. Enlist a brother and sister in Christ. One who not, will not only not condemn you. I don't want brothers and sisters in Christ like that with me. The enemy gives me enough condemnation. But who also will not give you a pass. Who remind you of the gospel. That God so loved you. That he wants you to love him back. Are you living on the edge of the Christian life? Or do you have a center? Do you have a desire to move towards the center? Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, your living, inactive, holy, righteous, 